Hello and welcome to A's Plus, the San Francisco Chronicles podcast on the Oakland A's and Major League Baseball. I'm your host, beat writer Susan Slusser, and in honor of the team's 50th anniversary in Oakland, we'll be talking to equipment manager Steve Vucinich, who has been with the team its entirety in Oakland. He'll tell us how he was first hired and also some of the more unusual requests he's received from players over the years. Then on the Player's Choice segment, reliever Ryan Dull joins us to discuss which reality shows he and his family enjoy watching together. And on the Shea Plus segment, John Shea and I discuss the A's free game as well as some recent pitching performances. I'd like to welcome Steve Vucinich, the A's longtime equipment manager, to the A's Plus podcast. Uh, Vuce, uh, has, of course, has worked for the team since its inception in Oakland, and uh, this is the 50th anniversary of the A's very first game in Oakland this week, so we figured it a nice time to have Vuce on. Vuce, we've talked many times about how you came to work for the Oakland A's, but um, just kind of give us a little recap of, of what happened and, and how it came to be. Well, in 68, when they moved out from Kansas City, they hired five kids to be bad boys, ball boys, clubhouse managers, whatever. And um, I knew four of the five, although they didn't really know each other. So I went down after they had told me after opening day that one guy had quit. I went down and talked to the then equipment manager, Al Zeke, and uh, told him I'd like the job. I knew what it entailed. I knew the Coliseum. I knew the area. I was born and raised not far away. And uh, Joe DiMaggio was standing there. He was one of the coaches then. Only other big league uniform we ever wore besides the Yankees was the Oakland A's. And he said, hey, kid, what school you go to? I said, I go to St. Joe's in Alameda. And Joe said to Al, hey, he's a Catholic. You better hire him. Now, that did happen, and that was true, but I think I would have got the job anyway. But uh, it makes for a great story, and it is true. It's been well documented and written all over, and uh, it's an enjoy- a story I enjoy telling because it is true. Now, recently, um, you got to throw out the first pitch when the, the A's brought back the um, 50th, 50 greatest players in Oakland A's history. What, what was that night like for you? First of all, with all those guys who came back, but also throwing out the first pitch. Well, first of all, the 50 most popular players uh, were voted, and uh, it was great to do that in front of them. They thought it was a great honor. They were very supportive of me over the years, whether it was a guy that played for us four years ago or a guy that played 40 years ago. I've kept in touch with almost all of them along the along the way, so uh, it was special to, that they asked me to do that on that particular day. It was nerve-wracking for me because my arm isn't in the best of shape, and uh, I wanted to make sure I threw a strike. I didn't want to disappoint them. I didn't want to disappoint my family. I had a lot of people from out of town that came up uh, from L.A. and from the east to, to watch us. And uh, it, it, it was very special. I was touched. They gave me a uniform jersey framed with uh, my name on the back, the Kelly Green that the players were wearing and we wear every Friday. It had my name on it, but it had number 27 on it, uh, honoring Catfish Hunter, who was my favorite player of all time. So it was a very special evening. I was touched and brought to tears a little bit. Um, I don't know if you heard the story, but they said, who do you want to catch? I said, they said, do you want Steinbeck? Do you want Tennis? Do you want Fossey, all members of that team? I said, maybe I ought to opt for somebody more limber and can jump up higher and block it low. And so I chose Bob Melvin, and 
as it was, it would always happens. You carry an umbrella, it doesn't rain. I threw a strike. You did. It was a it was a perfect pitch. You didn't make Bob work at all, and I know he was delighted to catch that. Um, you mentioned catfish being your favorite. I know you've kind of it sort of keep a little bit of an informal list of your favorite guys, and it's it's very long. But but who? What other guys um, jump out to you? Both from the A's, and uh, you were on the visiting side for a number of years, and I think people would be interested to know which of the guys you really clicked with who were visiting players. When visiting players, it was tough to top Cal Ripken Jr. Of course, he came from a baseball family. His father was a coach and later a manager. And so he knew how to act. He had very professional. And that's the first thing I noticed with visiting players. Uh, guys like him, uh, a guy like Doc Medich, and he was higher education, so he was a little more reserved and, and quiet, but very professional. And Catfish, because I saw how he treated everybody, I mean, my one of my first days on the job was his perfect game, and he just was just a normal person, just happy he did it. He just happened to throw a, a no-hitter, a perfect game, get drive in three of the runs himself and get three hits. So there have been a lot of guys over the years, totally professional, Frank Howard, Robin Yount, George Brett, and I, I'm going that way, and a couple of those guys are Hall of Famers, but... Uh, They've also had longevity and success in the big leagues, and uh, there's a reason for it. It's the way they act. What about on the A side? Who are, who are the guys that um, were really sort of the most top-notch guys that you dealt with over the years? Well, I mentioned Catfish already, but Sal Bando was one. He, he was a born leader. He knew he was going to be a great leader, and everybody always thought he should have managed. Well, he took it a step farther. He was a general manager for some 10 years. Um, Jason Joppy, he's one of my all-time favorites. He's on the All-Voos team, a team that's yet to be disclosed fully. But <laughs> but uh, if there was one officially, he would be the captain of that team. So we've, we've had quite a few over the years. Yeah, you, we've, I think we've all been lucky with a number of great guys that have, have gone through that clubhouse. Now, um, you were the visiting clubhouse uh, manager for a number of years. Of course, now you've been on the, the, A's, the A's clubhouse manager for many, many years. What what is the difference between the two jobs? Well, easy to say this. In a visiting clubhouse, if there's a player you don't like, he's gone in three days. <laughs> On the home side, you got to live with him for seven months or so, but that, that's rare. Um, the, the, the job is, is, as much as it's like you're still managing the clubhouse, you're worried about food and beverages and laundry and things like that, equipment. Uh, the visiting clubhouse manager has to be there more often at 3 o'clock in the morning than I do because he's got, maybe we're home for 10 days, he's got three series, he's got three teams to unpack, and so many times they arrive in the middle of the night. On the home side, we just unpack the night we get in, as uh, this would be tonight, Sunday night. But uh, uh, So I've only got those nights to worry about. The visiting clubhouse manager has to know more faces, has to know all the different coaching staffs and the staffs itself have gotten so large with massage therapists and now you carry three trainers and two strength and conditioning coaches where when I started in a visiting clubhouse there was only one team that had even two trainers there were no strength and conditioning coaches there were no doctors there were no psychiatrists traveling there were very few bullpen catchers or batting practice pitchers so it's evolved over the years so Mikey really needs to know more faces than I need to um, but uh, some of those faces trade places. He tells me, hey, this guy's a good guy. We're getting him in a trade. And I'll tell him, hey, uh, you know, so-and-so, now we traded him so somewhere else and take care, special care of him because he's a former A. 
Oh, that's really good. We, now, last year, we talked a, a little bit about how the, the job has evolved, the changes, and you, you kind of alluded to that. Um, but uh, there are a lot of uh, requests you get from players, and we talked last year about some of the strangest requests. Well, what can you tell us about some of the stranger requests you get? Because obviously the clubhouse kids are always being asked, to, can you go get this? Can you, can you take care of this? What, what do you remember about that? Well, there would always be questions. Hey, can we pick it, have somebody pick up my wife or my father or my mother at the airport during a game? And, you know, and you think, well, you're so close to the the, the uh, airport and the stadium in Oakland are so close. Why can't they take a cab or nowadays Uber or whatever? I mean, that's besides the point. But um, some of the stranger requests, I mean, they get sent out for a special bottle of wine for a celebration. We'll get different requests for birthday cakes. Uh, always last minute. It's like they can't plan in the advance. Clemens one was a classic. Clemens one was a classic. Yeah, at four o'clock in the afternoon. Can we get one by seven? Um, the Mikey did one last year for a guy that the birthday cake he wanted it to look like a butt, <laughs> and so they they found a, a place that did specialty cakes <laughs> like that. Uh, I helped Jed Lowry's wife do a special birthday cake last year for him. And if you looked at this birthday cake, you'd think it was two bottles of wine on a cake. It didn't even look like a cake. It just looked like two bottles of wine. It was so perfect. And I'm probably pretty expensive, too. But I had a request a few years ago. We were in Anaheim. Game was over. And this player came to me and said, hey, can you have one? I know your kids are going to unpack when we arrive, an hour flight. He said, but can you have them run over to this restaurant in San Francisco, pick me up a dinner, and then have them meet me at the plate. And I said, no, we're not doing it. So that, that I mean, as far as special requests I can talk to you about on a podcast, that's probably the strangest I've had. Um, you, have you, what are the biggest equipment snafus you've had? I, I remember that Mikey Thalbum one, one year forgot the, the, base, the baseballs, right, for, uh, no. or the bats for a spring training game. And I think there have been a few other little things here and there. Yeah, um, I, I take more pride in saying that, hey, we've had a 10-game winning streak wearing yellow jerseys and we're not supposed to wear them on the road. I got permission to do that, and I hit them in New York until about a half hour before a game time, and we're all excited, and now we won 11 in a row. We lost the next night, so that was the end of that. <laughs> but as far as forgetting things, not too often. I mean, uh, Mikey forgot bats in Tucson, but they got there in time. That was a spring training game. I did the same thing with catcher's gear going to Tucson years ago. Forgot to load the catcher's gear. They just borrow blue stuff until I can get somebody to run it down there. Uh, we haven't had any major things here like I've seen other clubs have. Uh, uniform snafus. All of a sudden, somebody's jersey disappears. Don't know what happened to it. We've always had time to make one up. Every stadium and clubhouse manager has somebody nearby uh, standing by to uh, sew names and numbers on. So we've been pretty fortunate that way. One time we lost the hats, uh, our hat box going into Tacoma. Fortunately, it was only a AAA exhibition game. And we just, the hats disappeared. They're in a special little suitcase. And they were found three weeks later at, at the airport, at SeaTac Airport. Nobody knew what it was. Finally opened it up and saw what it was and gave us a call. And somehow, when they're unloading the plane, it got put to the side and just got fumbled about. So there haven't been too many bad ones for us. I mean, uh, say run out of balls for, for batting practice because we used so many, lost so many. You can always borrow from the visiting team. But I remember you mentioning once that um, when the Red Sox came into town, those sort of those well-known Red Sox teams with Yaz and Jim Rice, they used to lo- like to load up um, their equipment trucks with, what was it? Was it Coors? It was Coors. Uh, in those days, you couldn't get Coors uh, east of, I think, Nebraska. 
and I don't even know if it was in Texas yet. It might have been in Texas. But uh, so they'd bring extra equipment trunks, and these are the old trunks from back in the 40s and the 50s. They'd bring two or three, and I would uh, had a connection and went downtown at a discount liquor place when everything was still fair trade. God gave me a special price, and we just loaded this thing up with cores. Well, the truth of the matter, cores is pasteurized, so it needs to stay cold. So when they got it back after a flight to Boston, I can't imagine that beer was anything like it was supposed to be, but we just loaded up and then one year they came out, they only brought one trunk, and I said, what happened to the second trunk? I said, well, we got it back there, and all the clubhouse guys were drinking it before we got to the ballpark the next day, so we said, we're just taking enough for us. That's great. Now, what what aspects of your job do our members of the general public usually either the most confused about? What questions do you get the most, or are they most surprised to learn? Probably the number of balls, the number of bats, the, the variances in the bats, how I might order a total of 200 dozen over the course of a year and maybe only four dozen are identical as far as length weight type of wood whether you want them cup the finish the color whatever um how many baseballs we go through and how many jerseys we all have i mean we're wearing we will wear seven jerseys by the end of april this year uh we've got our normal white and gray green and uh gold and we've got the alternate green then we have jackie robinson jersey uh, the number 42, and we've got a turn back the clock uh, jersey coming up. And so, the, the, how many jerseys? I mean, how much room do we have in the locker? <laughs> and how many baseballs do you use over the course of the year? Everybody asks me this question. I always think of it in dollars, is how much my budget is. <laughs> but I would say um, I think we probably use about uh, 10,000 baseballs. That's, I had no idea. That's, that is crazy. Um, and it, like in a year where there's uh, a lot of discussion about juiced balls, as there has been again recently, it comes up every, every few years. Do you guys ever kind of go through the balls and like, I, like try to unravel them or take a look at them? Do you, do, you, do you have your own theories about balls and juiced years? I think it's just a sign of the time. Some years are, atmospheric conditions are better. They've, now they've uh, kind of uh, streamlined the bats as far as what you can do with maple and birch, and I think that's a big part of it. I just think sometimes there are years where you're worse pitching. Um, I'm not going to be the one to cut open a ball and find out something's different about it, believe me, because I would only upset Major League Baseball, Commissioner's <laughs> Office, Rawlings Sporting Goods, probably the hitters and everybody else, so it's not me. Somebody else wants to take a run at it. I remember Ron Bergman after the year of expansion in 69, he cut up a couple balls and thought there was something different. I said, hey, he had 30 or 40 more pitchers to the game. That's 40 more guys that should have been in AAA. Yes. So that's that has a big play in it. Yeah, the late, great Ron Bergman um, of the o- Oakland Tribune and then the San Jose Mercury News, one of the all-time greats to cover the A's. Um, you've always been very media-friendly. Who have been some of your favorite media people? Well, you mentioned Ron Bergman, and he and I were good friends. and used to go to Cal football games together with him. Um, uh, I just had so many over the few uh, years. We just saw Jim Street, you, 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 of course. Bruce Jenkins has always been a good friend um, and written some nice things about me in the past. Some of the national media, uh, Peter Gammons, uh, Nick Cafardo from Boston, uh, Jim Henneman in Baltimore. So I've had a lot of friends meet. A lot of that was because I think, other than yourself, the beat writers stayed on the beat longer in those days, and I was in a visiting clubhouse, and uh, you didn't have a plethora of, of uh, uh, bloggers or, or uh, feeders and TV guys, so you got to know the guys that were around, and it made a big difference. So, you know, I knew a bunch of them. 
Now, how much longer do you envision doing this since you are in your 51st year with the Oakland A's? Well, I, I don't anticipate going as long as Mike Murphy from the Giants because he's got 10 years on me. And, and he'd have to quit tomorrow and me work 10 years. I don't see that. So I don't know. I've always said I would consider it when the bad outweighs the good. And right now the good still outweighs the bad. Uh, it's still a fun part. It's a great place to be. I'm one of only 30 jobs in the country or 29 because of Toronto. So it's a, it's, it's a good opportunity. Yeah, yeah, I think you're the second longest serving A's employee after Connie Mack all time. Is that right? Something like that? Well, last year we were in Philadelphia. They honored me, and it was a member of the Philadelphia Athletics Historical Society, which when you think that they moved out after the 54, 54 season and anybody's still alive that saw him play in Philadelphia, so they have to be old. But uh, uh, he actually did some homework and said, I have now passed Connie Mack. Wow. So uh, that's kind of special, too. I mean, that $2 up in Seattle gets you a cup of Starbucks coffee. <laughs> uh, so, but, it, but it was fun. They honored me there, and uh, they wrote in the paper the next day that I was one of the few people with visiting team colors that didn't get booed in Philadelphia. <laughs> so it was kind of neat. That's great. Perfect way to end up our talk with Steve Vucinich, the A's legendary equipment manager. Thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure. Today on Player's Choice, we welcome A's reliever Ryan Dull, just off the DL. Um, Ryan, I know that you like to do some fun stuff with your family when it comes to TV viewing. Tell us about uh, what you guys, your, your uh, sort of routine. I, I mean, it's kind of just, like, just a way just to get the family together. Like, we've been watching Survivor pretty much since it started, like when I was in fifth grade. And we, we just always find time, like every Wednesday or used to be on Thursdays, just find time to just say, like, after dinner, just sit back and relax and just enjoy being around each other. It actually usually starts with like Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy because like my mom's like an avid Wheel of Fortune fan, so like that's where it all starts. That's awesome. So, what do you do during the season when obviously you're you're away from your home? Uh, I try to keep up with it, keep up with all my shows. Like I use the CBS app. Uh, ABC app, just any type of show. Like I just try to stay at least caught up. Even if I miss the episode like the night before, I'll watch it like the next morning when I wake up. So, do you if you watch something um, on the road that you usually watch with with your mom, dad, whoever? Um, do you like talk to them about it later? Do you like check in and go like, hey, can you believe that thing happened on Survivor last night? Uh, yeah, we'll usually we'll catch up and talk about it at some point. Like sometimes, like when they come visit, like we'll talk about it like the next day like, when they catch up as well. But it's just more like we don't we won't spoil like any episodes if like either of us haven't seen it yet. That's awesome. Are there any other reality shows that you guys watch together? Uh, we watched. We've been like Survivor, Amazing Race. We've been together. We'll watch. We watch The Voice a lot. But then like there's other like shows like we watch Scorpion together. We'll watch. watch a lot of I think NCIS just a, a lot of it's been a lot of shows like on CBS that we'll sit and watch big fan of like Big Bang Theory the young Sheldon like those those are just like our type of shows it's just who we are that's awesome that's great so if you've watched the amazing I, I love the amazing Rachel I watched it ever since it started have you ever considered like being a contestant on it do you like to think like who you would go on the amazing race with oh 100 percent like every every time just we were saying it's like well like, could I do this but it's like well with the job right now I can't do this 
yeah. CBA probably would not allow you no, to do that. Not not at all. But like, if I ever wanted to, I I have a couple like friends, family members in mind that I would definitely consider doing that show with. Are there any teammates that you like at the in sometime in the future down the line that you would go? That guy would be a perfect candidate to take with me on the Amazing Race. Uh, I have like I mean, there's a couple teammates. It just like depends on what what kind of show you're ready for. Like, it just did more like their personality and like their this is like the physical part of it. Like who are you willing to travel with? Right. Who would jump off of stuff and exactly. who who's the strong guy or who speaks Spanish or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I, honestly, if it was you and any of these guys, that would be great. Exactly, yeah. Any, anybody you couldn't go wrong with. Yeah, take Chris Hatcher. Chris Hatcher would be good. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> At going on the Amazing Race with Brian Dalton. No, we need to do like Survival or Awesome. Thanks for joining us on Player's Choice. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you. John Shea joins us for his weekly segment. John, it's been a strange sort of week or two for the A's in terms of pitching. We knew that the starting pitching was going to be a question mark for the team. I guess the good news is that that the A's finally have gotten some really nice performances. Uh, Sean Manias continued to pitch well. Daniel Mengton threw in a very nice outing. Uh, And Trevor Cahill rejoined the team and was absolutely lights out. What what do you make right now of, of what the A's are getting from their starting pitching? Well, I thought Cahill's performance was stunning. Uh, last we saw him in his last really good year was as a reliever, and he returned to starting as kind of a swingman last year and then signed late here by the A's. Didn't get a full spring training or anything, but my goodness, he just shut out inning after shut out inning. And, you know, maybe he doesn't have the same velocity we used to see, but it's it's uh, really good stuff in, in terms of fooling batters and making them take the slow walk back to the dugout uh you know that breaking stuff that just drops over the top of the strike zone was was sort of baffling and it's good to see you <laughs> just kind of fit in and and funny that the one his first game was the game that was uh the free game so there are tons of people there kind of like back in the day when you know he was was pitching in fact i think he referenced uh crowds like that were kind of the crowds uh uh, that, you know, for the Giants A's games, uh, back in interleague, back at the height of interleague. And, uh, you know, he experienced all that. And obviously when the Yankees or Red Sox or the playoffs, uh, uh, rolled into town, you know, there was also a big deal, but it was, it was nice to see him. Uh, uh, I think what they had three straight, really good pitch games, and then it all kind of blew up on Wednesday. But, uh, I mean, for, for uh, a roster whose weak spot or whose questionable spot was the rotation, it was a pretty good sign there for a while. What do you think of, uh, you know, the, the obviously the A's have Brett Anderson kind of waiting in the wings. Do you think he's a guy that we might see at some point soon? I, as I wrote uh, last week at some point, Kendall Graveman potentially is in danger of being sent down. He's got options left. He obviously has not gotten it together this year. Uh, I, I'm not sure how long the leash is with him. Can you can you envision the A's maybe replacing him with Brett Anderson or Daniel Gossett or somebody at, at some point uh, in the near future? Yeah, for sure. And I imagine you agree, uh, Graveman being out of options, I mean, having options, excuse me, because he hasn't put in the f- uh, full, uh, you know, three seasons as a 
big leaguer in terms of service time. Uh, yeah, so he, he could definitely be a, a candidate. Now, they were hoping to see a lot more out of him as the opening day starter in consecutive years. Uh, last year was basically because Sonny Gray was hurt, and this year because uh, you know he had the best year last year. But if you look back at last year, his ERA was four and a half. Uh, it's not like ace material. It's not like he. It's not like uh, Manaya is pitching this year. So he had his ups and downs last year. I mean, he was kind of the, you know, if there was a workhorse, he was it. Uh, you know, he didn't spend as much time on the DL as, as in the past. But uh, you know, he just hasn't gotten it all together. And it w- <laughs> how about that, Anderson and Cahill in the same rotation? I mean, who would have thunk it in spring training? Yeah, that's that would be pretty remarkable. I've I've always been um, one of the people that thinks Kendall Graveman is going to turn things around and be a really really nice solid starter. Uh, the key to me, I think, you know, he's been sort of a two pitch pitcher. He's he's got you know tried to add a few other things in, a few other wrinkles, but it seems like he winds up maybe getting a little too predictable. I, I still feel like there's that you know that he's got a chance to be a pretty good pitcher. So I do you know if they do send him out. Uh, I hope it's just to get his, you know, get everything together and, and so he can come back and be much more effective. And I, I assume that that would be the plan. Now, well, let, let me ask you, let me ask you if do you, do you feel that he feels any pressure of being the frontline guy? Because maybe he's more set out as a three or four guy because but but because of a lack of. Uh, superior arms in this rotation, he was kind of forced to be the number one guy. Was that too much pressure? Because he did talk throughout spring training. Yeah, I want to be a leader. I want these younger guys to come to me. And maybe he wasn't fit for that role. Yeah, you know, I think, weirdly, I think he's really well fit for the leadership role, but I don't know if he's well fit for sort of a number one, you know, opening day starter. I think there is a lot of pressure that comes with that. And Bob Melvin says he's overthrowing, and that's you know typically can be a sign of somebody who's trying too hard for a sinker baller, especially if you're overthrowing. You know, you're sometimes you're throwing through the sink, so I, I think that maybe he is. And of course, it compounds, right? A, a bad outing, and then you try even harder, and then another bad outing and gets you know kind of turns into a vicious vicious cycle. So uh, yeah, I you know there's. There's no guarantees they will send him out. You know, he's he's. I think he's only. I think he's only ever had one option used before, so he does have options. But there, it's certainly that something that they have considered. So I think another rough outing or two, uh, and maybe it's something that you know they will send him out and say, you know, well, let's try to get that good sink back, try to work on the third pitch, you know, that 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 sort of thing. Now the A's did something incredibly unusual for their 50th anniversary game in Oakland. It was a really nice night. Uh, I think there was some apprehension because the team gave away free tickets to the game. Everybody in the ballpark got in for free. They had actually given away as many as 200,000 tickets. They'd winnowed that down through sort of an RSB VP kind of um, uh formula somehow to about 70,000, but I think there was still apprehension. They didn't wind up filling the entire place. Mount Davis remained closed, but for baseball capacity, which is about 48,000 now, they came really close. Over 46,000 was really nice to see it full. And what struck me is uh, it was done so smoothly. You know, I'm really impressed with how the A's handled it. Of course, they've had big crowds before. They know how to handle it, but they didn't know what they were going to get. Uh, and and uh, the fan reaction was sensational and really, really, really fun to see. What, what did you think of the promotion itself and the way things kind of happened on, on uh, the free night? 
Well, it was kind of a pleasant surprise. I mean, there wasn't that extra police activity that you might have envisioned because, you know, first come, first serve. It's like people rush into their seats, uh, an overflow crowd because they had 70,000 people who semi-committed. You know, they settled at 45,000. You know, some people had six tickets, eight tickets and didn't go. Some people wrote on social media that uh, they were kind of afraid to go because they thinking it was going to be too much of a zoo that they couldn't find parking or the lines would be too long. And it kind of worked out perfectly. Uh, nobody had to sit in Mount Davis except for a couple of people who just walked up there to check out the view. But it was a lot of good vibes. And as Melvin said, hey, we wanted to score early and we did. And that kind of set the tone for uh, for a good time at the ballpark. And, you know, we haven't seen too much of that. But um, I'm I'm curious to find out, and I asked the questions. They hadn't they hadn't put the math together by the time I did. Was it profitable? Because they had forty five thousand people. They had to pay for all the employees to work, um, but the concessions, the, the the beer, the hot dogs, the T-shirts. And Bob Melvin spoke about how you know he went up the third baseline to sign autographs and came across a lot of people who were at their first baseball game. Not their first A's game, but their first baseball game. So it was kind of an introduction for all ages. Hey, come and check out the product, and if you like it, come back again. Because now they have in their uh, computer system you know, names of a lot more people who did sign up who weren't otherwise uh, you know, obtainable for, for the front office to kind of go after and um, try to sell tickets to. You know, now they have these interested uh you know fans who may or may not want to come back but after that opportunity and after that night and it was a good vibe all around you know maybe a lot of them will come back yeah i it really interesting i i had started i know dave cavill said on tv the other night that they they had 20 20 to 25 percent new fans who'd never been to a game before what he meant was in the computer but that's great i mean what you know, any business to be able to get that kind of addition to your database of potential customers, that's huge. And when you're talking 20 to 25% of, I assume he's talking about the 200,000 that they uh, originally registered for free tickets, uh, you know, up to maybe 50,000 new customers in their database, that's, that's brilliant marketing. So whether or not the free game was profitable in terms of concessions, parking. At, uh, oh, parking was free too. That's right. Um, you know that doesn't really. You know it, it could pay off big down the line with that having that many more potential customers and those people who did go for the first time ever. Great game, great atmosphere, uh, and there are a lot of new bells and whistles now. A lot of people roll their eyes. Long time. A's people, fans, you know, that, okay, there's only so much lipstick you can put on a pig with a Coliseum, but that new treehouse area is terrific. It's kind of a party deck. I went out there a couple of times. It's really well done. It's a great place, and it's sort of a standing room only. People can buy that monthly pass, which is really cheap, and uh, hang out there. TVs and, you know, bar, and it's, it's, that's nice. And they, you know, they've got the farm area. They've obviously did the Shy Park Tavern last year. Uh, so they are certainly trying to make it a better experience. And anybody that either has never been before or who hasn't been since they started adding things like the food truck and the tavern, et cetera, I think they those are the people who might then come back. So uh, yeah, I know they wanted to do it as legitimately as a celebration of that 50th anniversary, which is great. But I think in terms of marketing, it could wind up having big benefits for them. So, so uh, it, certainly an interesting idea. 
I know you broached the topic of the attendance, which that was that's an interesting thing. You know, we had been under the assumption that since it was all free tickets, that the days had actually said going into it that none of it would count toward official attendance. But it sounds like MLB recognizing what a nice gesture it is actually is counting it in some ways. Is there a way to easily explain this, John? Yeah, good. That's a great question. I, I looked into it the day after, and the day after the attendance was thirteen thousand. They did. Charge admission, uh, that was the five-hour and 48-minute game, and they won an extras, 14 to be exact. But, uh, yeah, so they're, um, they're looking at this in, a, in uh, you know, Major League Baseball, I reached out to them. See, I think the A's originally were hoping that that 46,000 would count with attendance, but MLB wouldn't accept it. They only look at paid attendance so like you said it was a gesture they what they decided to do was kind of not even count it not just the attendance but the game itself so it won't be a date counted in terms of attendance figures so they play 81 home games but according to their attendance figures only 80 of them will be counted so it it it, it wouldn't help you with a spike if you counted the 40 6,000 because they were unpaid tickets and it won't hurt you if you go with the zero balance that uh, none of them were paid you know they reimbursed the season ticket holders so nobody had to get to pay to get in so what MLB is doing is saying okay it's a wash we won't even count the game uh, because you know they they did this unusual thing and let everybody in for free so it wasn't an aim for paid attendance at all so we won't even register it in our uh, data banks. So at the end of the year, you're going to see 80 home dates with attendance average and attendance totals, not 81. So that was kind of cool. And uh, the, the A's are fine with it because if, you know, in the, in the day after numbers, the, uh, you know, baseball puts out its uh, daily attendance, the average was 17,000. Well, really it's 14,000 because uh, the 17 included the 46,000 in the, in the free game. So, the uh, MLB rep I spoke with said they have to manually go into the system and remove that eventually. So that's how that's what's going to happen. So you're going to see more of a realistic average and and not 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 including the free game. But it will be listed, I think, in the box score. Um, you know, it was for, yeah. for posterity. Yeah. So um, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the A's had said, uh, and I, I had, was surprised to learn this. The A's had said that this it was the first free game. It turns out that the Brewers had a free game on the final game of 2005 uh, in order to thank the fans. And, um, they, of course, they had season ticket holders who had already purchased tickets, and apparently they gave them vouchers for free game that following year. Mm. So a little bit different, but uh, looking at that, the box score said 13,000 sums. So I'm not sure whether that was the season ticket holders who'd already purchased tickets or if that was the, the crowd. I think it, didn't, it did not draw anything where near what the A's did yesterday or um, this week. So... Um, kind of an interesting idea. I'm not sure, you know, looking at the Brewers, if that was necessarily helpful for them in the following year in terms of attendance, but I, I, I would imagine that it was a nice benefit for the A's. Now, uh, the A's offense, we knew was going to have a lot of firepower. Uh, Jed Lowry's start, he, he had a terrific season last year, was the A's probably best all-around player. He's just been on fire, uh, potentially, you know, looks like he might be the A's all-star. 
um, really, you know, one of the best players in the league. Don't right forget now. Sean Manaya. Yeah, and Sean Manaya exactly. It would be nice to have have two for the first time in a while. Uh, what what are your thoughts on on Jed Lowry and his fast start? Yeah, the the A's were down six to one in in the game the other day, and and you figured, oh boy, this is this is not looking good. And then all of a sudden they win uh, in extra innings in 14. So they came back and it was Lowry who put them ahead in the eighth inning with the two run homer, their first lead of the day. And it's, it's, it, it's really amazing. This guy, I mean, he was the one guy you would think wouldn't be back. But I mean, he was the one guy who didn't get traded. All those guys who, who were dealt last year, you figure, well, he had a chance to get moved at the trade deadline last year. And he wasn't, well, he can be traded in the off season. He wasn't maybe even going into spring training. It's not like they don't have a guy at that position in the minor leagues. I mean, Franklin Barreto is one of their top prospects. And if they move Lowry, it's an obvious replacement. But uh, here he is. He's leading the team. He's leading the majors in, in, in hits. He's leading the majors in, in RBIs. And who would have thunk it for the little second baseman out of Stanford? But uh, he's uh, he's he, you know what he he's good on this team because he's surrounded by a bunch of guys who really haven't been around long, like like you know Chapman and Olson and Pender. I mean Marcus Simeon's is, is has been around, but not nearly as long as Lowry, and uh, maybe he's kind of a settling influence for these young pitchers as well and it's it's kind of the first time we've looked at jed lowry as a leader yeah you know he played on some good boston teams and he came to oakland he, you know a lot of the guys around him were were you know stars you know on the on the bob melvin's playoff teams and and now over time you know he spent a year in houston and came back over time he's sort of developed into the guy that you know, Marcus Simeon looks to to, to help him. Um, uh, the corner infielders look to to help him and some of the pitchers as well. So it's kind of evolved into a cool story. But, you know, over a stretch there of seven games, they scored 60 runs and won five of them. And Lowry's been front and center. You know, we expected the, the corner uh, infielders to, to, be, to be the face of the franchise. But here comes Jed Lowry. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt. He's he's the leader of the team and and the the guy that the young hitters look up to. And what a you know he's such a well prepared professional hitter. We're great a great guy for them to look up to. Of course, the the fear is that if the A's are kind of out of it midway through the season, if he's doing anything even close to this, his, his trade value will be enough. So maybe they do pull the plug and trade him. Now, um, speaking about attendance again, uh, it's been a strange start to the season league wide with this huge number of cancellations. Uh, it's been a real problem, especially in the cold weather areas. Some some games co- uh, canceled not for rain or snow, but for actually just cold. Um, as the national baseball writer for the Chronicle, what do you make of this? What can baseball do? Uh, was it the early, you know, they started a little bit earlier. Uh, I, I, they built in a lot more off days, but man, it's going to be tough coming back from, you know, some, some series were completely wiped out. Yeah, as the uh, national baseball writer of the Chronicle, I'm glad to be the national baseball writer of the Chronicle. We <laughs> did have one, <laughs> one, yeah, one rain out in San Francisco this year, but but it's so rare in these parts. It's so rare in L.A. and San Diego and Anaheim that we just don't understand what a rain out is. And sometimes the tarps don't always get out on the the infield as quickly as they should because we're just not well versed or experienced in that thing. But uh, all around baseball, otherwise, from Seattle to the East Coast. Um, well, not necessarily Seattle, but, but, uh, you know, the, the, the weather has been really bad and, you know, you can't blame it on the early start because these rainouts have gone well into April. 
So even if they started a week later, we would have seen a lot of these. And and we've heard suggestions of 154. We've heard 142, you know, shorten the season. Uh, 162 is too long, especially because MLB and the union got together in the last collective bargaining agreement and added off days. So the regular season is longer now. So either way, you have to start in March or you have to end in October for the regular season. So they started in March and they just didn't want to end the World Series in November this year. So a little earlier start. And, uh, you know, Chicago, the Cubs have gotten a lot of, you know, the, the, the problem is, you know, Major League Baseball wants these games played because they don't want to stack up a bunch of double headers or or extra travel. I mean, that's that's that costs a lot of money uh, uh, just to fly in for a game, in, you know, in June or July. And, um, you know, so, you know, what, what does it mean? It means it means the standings are kind of wacky because a lot of teams have played a full schedule so far and a lot of teams have been missing a lot of games. So um, maybe we're not going to see these made up until much later in the season. And that's going to affect pitching staffs. It's going to, uh, you know, get teams tired, uh, you know, playoff um, teams heading heading to October. You know, w- will they feel the effects? Uh but the shortened schedule, you know, I just don't buy that because the owners and players would have to be in on it, and both team, both sides would have to accept less money. And when's the, when's the last time either of those have done that? Right. And you hear you hear fans say like, "Well, why don't they just play all the, you know, uh, play in warm weather cities for the first month?" Well, you know, then that means that the warm weather cities have to play, uh, you know, the final kind of month of the year on the road, and nobody wants that either. So that you know, it does have to be sort of half and half. To me, the one really egregious thing in all of this is that the Twins were allowed to build their new ballpark without any roof. Now, mm-hmm. the footprint where they are apparently wouldn't take a retractable style roof, um, but when you're taking a team in Minnesota. It's playing in a dome and they're moving to a new ballpark. I think you have to insist that they have some sort of covering because Minnesota has been a massive problem between the cold and the, and the snow and the rain. Uh, so, uh, that, I don't know how you fix that at this point. Apparently they, I don't think they can retroactively put on a roof and the cost is prohibitive, but that never should have been allowed to happen. And I think, uh, in the future, any, any ballpark in those kind of areas with that type of weather in April, May, Really, really, they need to take a hard look at requiring some type of retractable roof. And you know what? We're not counting. We're counting the games that were played in blizzards. Yeah. I mean, there was that one game, the Cubs and Braves at Wrigley. It, it literally was, I think. And Joe Madden said, even though he won, the Cubs manager said that this game never should have been played. Yeah. It was the worst uh, environment for a baseball game I've ever been in. Yeah. So th- they're kind of the forcing fans. that stuff. Yeah, not or, or the health of the players. Yeah, or the te- yeah, you're risking injuries. It's uh, you could affect a team's entire season playing in conditions like that. It's just uh, let alone the writers. Yeah. <laughs> well, that should always be the first consideration. <laughs> we're really very cold in Seattle despite the retractable roof. Uh, yeah. John Shea is always an absolute delight to have you join us for A's Plus on the Shea Plus podcast. We will talk to you again next week. Thanks very much, Susan. This show is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Our theme music is The Third by Anatech, courtesy of the Free Music Archive. This show is produced by me and Fernando Diaz. For more A's coverage, you can follow me on Twitter, at Susan Slusser. Check out all of our coverage at sfchronicle.com.